Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and in this last week of the year, between Christmas and the New Year, as the year comes to a close, we're looking back on Background Briefing's coverage of the major stories and issues of the year 2021. Today we'll examine the major foreign policy events of the year 2021 as a new Cold War with China appeared to be brewing and tensions with Russia were on the rise, along with America's longest war in Afghanistan coming to an ignominious end. Beginning with China, on April the 28th of 2021, we spoke with veteran diplomat Chaz Freeman, who was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and the former Director of Chinese Affairs at the United States Department of State, and the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's opening to China in 1972. We discussed how China and Russia are growing closer as strategic partners militarily, diplomatically and economically. And in a worst case scenario, if Russia were to go to war against Ukraine, China might take advantage of the U.S.'s distraction by moving on Taiwan. Then on the background briefing broadcast of April the 26th of 2021, we covered the bombings at the Kabul airport in which 13 U.S. Marines were killed and 15 injured, along with over 100 Afghans killed, including Taliban guards. Earlier on Tuesday, President Biden had warned that ISIS-K was seeking to target the airport, making the case that, quote, the sooner we finish, the better, but that did not stop the predictable storm of Republican criticism. Joining us was Adam Weinstein, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a former Marine who served in Afghanistan. We discussed the murky relationship, which on the surface has the Taliban, an enemy of the Islamic State, but nevertheless the Taliban did empty the jails, letting terrorists free. With 100,000 now evacuated ahead of next Tuesday's deadline, we assessed what can be done to get the remaining 1,000 Americans out, some schoolchildren from San Diego whose parents ignored State Department warnings not to travel to Afghanistan. Then finally, we will discuss the deteriorating U.S. relations with Russia and go to the background briefing broadcast of October the 12th of 2021 when we spoke with Fiona Hill, a senior fellow at the Center for the United States and Europe in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. She recently served as deputy assistant to President Trump and was Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019, and from 2006 to 2009 served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. She is the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and The Siberian Curse, How Communist Planners Left Russia Out in the Cold, and her latest book is There Is Nothing For You Here, finding opportunity in the 21st century, and we discussed her concern that we are at a really critical and very dangerous inflection point. And if Trump makes a successful return to the presidency in 2024 on the back of a lie, a fiction, American democracy will be done. And before we go to our first guest, In order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So now background briefing is completely independent and it remains free of commercials, free of corporate underwriting, 
but now relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. So in these last couple of days of 2021, listeners can get a tax deduction by donating to Background Briefing at our non-profit, the Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must fully engage in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And we wish you all a happy new year. And joining us now is Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who is a visiting scholar at the Brown University Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his roles in designing a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé d'Affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing, the former Director of Chinese Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. He was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and you were supposed to be in charge of coordinating intelligence for President Obama, and that got torpedoed by the Israel lobby. But if you were in that position now with his vice president, now President Biden, what kind of advice or what kind of landscape would you lay out for President Biden in terms of the landscape, in terms of the foreign policy challenges he faces? Uh, Well, he inherited a uh, severely deteriorated portfolio of relationships, Uh, relations across the Atlantic with uh, NATO allies uh, are badly frayed. Germany and others are trying to distance themselves a bit from the United States and uh, be more assertive. Um, Brexit has happened, which means that uh, the United Kingdom, which used to be a sympathetic voice in the councils of Europe, is no longer present to represent American views. Uh, The relationships in Asia uh, vary among uh, allies and partners. Uh, are also uh, changing as they hedge against perceived American decline um, and uh, beef up their own capabilities and begin to form relationships among themselves. Um, The uh, effect of U.S. policies of uh, determined rivalry with other great powers uh, has pushed Russia and China together in ways that would have been previously unimaginable. Uh, there's even a possibility that uh, the, if the Russians feel obliged to take action in Ukraine, uh, the Chinese will choose that moment uh, to coordinate an assault on Taiwan or vice versa. Uh, so this is a very dangerous environment uh, in which uh, the diplomatic practices of the past have little relevance. Uh, so I think uh, uh, Mr. Biden 
President Biden has his work cut out for him. And of course, President Biden is really has an ambitious domestic policy agenda. Uh, he's trying to be a transformational president with a very thin electoral margin in both the House and the Senate. So I think the last thing he needs is a foreign policy crisis. But you just mentioned one. And indeed, following President Putin's address to the Duma recently, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman uh, Wang Wenbin described Russia and China as comprehensive strategic partners of coordination in a new era in which China and Russia will continue to understand and support each other in safeguarding our respective sovereignty, security, and development interests. Now, what you just described as a possibility of Putin moving against Ukraine and then China moving against Taiwan is the opposite of what uh, you were involved with with President Nixon in accomplishing the triangulation where the U.S. was in the catbird seat trading off between uh, Russia and uh, or the Soviet Union and China. So has that turned against us, that triangle? Uh, well, there is no triangle anymore. Or if there is one, we are the odd country out. Um, it's always wise to divide your adversaries rather than unite them. Uh, but we have been doing everything possible to unite them. This is not wise. In fact, it's very dangerous. Now, I think there's an important point to be made, and that is that contrary to much of the domestic rhetoric about Russia and China, neither one wants a war, uh, neither wants to invade anybody, uh, but each is feeling that it might be provoked into doing so. Uh, the recent massive de Russian deployment along the Ukrainian border uh, near the Donbass uh, was intended to signal that if provoked, Russia would invade. Similarly, the Chinese are sending signals in the Taiwan case that if provoked, uh, they are now prepared to invade. Uh, so this is a fragile moment in great power relationships. But in terms of China's one country, two systems, which they had in Hong Kong, my understanding was that that was also meant to be translated to Taiwan. But after what's happened in Hong Kong, I can't imagine the Taiwanese are interested anymore. Where do you see that relationship heading now with these incursions of uh, overflights by Chinese aircraft and um, <laughs> The British, by the way, are sending a fleet to, the, to uh, go past the uh, Chinese-claimed islands in uh, the South Pacific. So a lot of people are concerned uh, that we may blunder into a, a Cold War in that region. When you just mentioned that you don't think either Russia or China necessarily want a war, aren't we in a situation, particularly with Taiwan, that could be similar to you know, 1914, the guns of August? Well, there is that danger, to be sure. Um, I think on the one country, two system proposal, uh, two things, maybe three things have to be said. The first is that the proposal for Taiwan was very different from that for Hong Kong. One country, two systems uh, actually means one country, many systems. And uh, what was proposed for Taiwan as the opening negotiating position of Beijing was uh, that Taiwan keep its own armed forces to defend its part of China on its own, uh, and that uh, no uh, official from Beijing would be stationed in uh, Taiwan, but Taiwan would be 
able to send officials to Beijing to help govern then all of China. That was very different from Hong Kong. Uh, but it never had any great resonance in Taiwan for historical reasons. Um, the Taiwanese who are, uh, that is the Chinese who were present in Taiwan before Chiang Kai-shek's forces retreated there in 1949, uh, simply don't want to have another group of outsiders imposed on them, either directly or indirectly, and on the whole prefer either the current uh, status quo, which is autonomy, or uh, or perhaps in independence. Independence would start a war, um, as it did when the United States declared independence from Great Britain. Now, by the way, I don't think the um, sending of the uh, British aircraft carrier to the uh, East Asia is going to be uh, very intimidating to much of anyone these days, uh, but that is an aside. The final point is that I think Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong's one country, two systems, dilemma and uh, the tragedy that ensued there are not well understood. Uh, the mobs on the street were not uh, at trying to advance two systems. Hong Kong never had democracy. Um, they wanted it to evolve in that direction to be sure, although they were quite unclear about what their specific objectives were. But they were demonstrating against one China. Uh, they were trying to promote a secessionist agenda or at least some of them were. And um, this is totally unacceptable to the Chinese. And I think uh, many of us looking at that situation saw that it would inevitably, as tragedies do, lead to a disaster. Uh, so uh, anyway, in any event, you're absolutely correct. The formula now has very little appeal, if any, in Taiwan. And that raises a question. Is there a path to the peaceful reunification of China? And if there isn't, Chinese nationalism will demand that reunification be accomplished by force. That is the danger. And in terms of the demonstrations in Hong Kong, they did seem to, in, in many ways, sort of harken back to Tiananmen, where the students were initially commemorating the death of Hu Yaobang and then Zhao Jiang seemed to be sympathetic towards him. But when they cracked down on this, students, he was moved out and I guess a more hardline clique took over and they, ever since then they've pushed sort of nationalism and materialism to sort of exercise any notion of democracy. So do you think that given uh, how Xi Jinping has been able to consolidate the power of the Communist Party, pushing a hardline on propaganda and against any kind of liberal tendencies, if you will. Is there any possibility of, of any kind of traction for democracy in China, given that both uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are basically saying to their people, look, you know, democracy doesn't work, it's messy, and autocracy is much more efficient? Well, well, there is the uh, counterexample of Taiwan, which is, um, by most uh, countries' reckoning, part of China. It's certainly a Chinese society. Uh, it is the freest, most respectful of the rule of law in China's long history to take root on Chinese soil. Uh, so that is there as the germ of an idea uh, that may have traction in the future. But even in the case of Hong Kong, I think it's a mistake to write off 
the possibility of democracy. Uh, with the issue of whether Hong Kong is part of China or not off the table, um, as it should have been before, I think, um, the Hong Kong government is now going to have to confront some of the causes, not the exclusive causes, but contributory causes to the mob violence that ensued um, over the last year and a half before, before uh, it was suppressed. Uh, and that is that Hong Kong is basically governed by an oligarchy, uh, wealthy people who transact real estate um, deals. Uh, in fact, create land by uh, filling in the harbor. These oligarchs, for all their merits, and they are many of them very nice people, have totally neglected the well well-being of the ordinary Hong Kong citizen. Uh, Hong Kong people um, watch as foreigners and wealthy people from the mainland buy and occupy opulent apartments for outrageous prices, even as they basically have to live in the equivalent of a coat closet. Uh, the welfare system is very imperfect, and the educational system uh, does not prepare Hong Kong people to be competitive with those coming in from the mainland. Of course, Hong Kong is a small place, and the mainland is 1.4 billion people, uh, many of whom are very smart. The Chinese educational system is excellent in major urban centers, but Hong Kong has fallen behind. Um, and so I think the Hong Kong government, now that uh, the major issue of controversy is off the table, is going to be forced by the people in Hong Kong to address these long-standing areas of neglect in its governance. And again, I'm speaking with Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who is a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, earning the highest public service awards from the Department of Defense for his role in designing a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge d'Affaires in the American embassies at both Bangkok and Beijing. He is the former Director of Chinese Affairs at the United States Department of State and was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972. So, given that you were... U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, can we just shift a little bit to the focus of U.S. foreign policy that actually Obama was trying to get away from, which is the Middle East? And it does seem that this shadow war between Israel and Iran could explode into a wider war at any moment. The missile that landed 30 kilometers from Israeli reactor at Dimona in the Negev Desert, the Israeli press are trying to Suggest, or the Israeli government are trying to suggest that it was a, it was a stray missile, but there is evidence that it was actually deliberately uh, fired by Iran from Syria as a, as a kind of signal in response to the recent Israeli sabotage of the Natanz nuclear enrichment site, and a big delegation of of Israeli generals and uh, intelligence, the head of Mossad, along with the army chief of staff, arriving next week in Washington. Do you know what the purpose of their trip is, and is there any? Does the U.S. have a role in trying to mediate between Iran and Israel so that there's not a wider war? Or I can't imagine that either side are particularly interested in mediation. But how do you see this situation, which seems to be quite volatile? 
Well, regrettably, the United States is not in a position to mediate because we have uh, no relationship to speak of with Tehran. Um, we have an intimate relationship with Israel, uh, but the current Israeli government is trying very hard to sabotage any uh, return to the Iran nuclear deal. It basically depends on the United States and hopes to uh, uh, put the United States in a position where Americans have to enforce Israel's nuclear monopoly in the region. Um, Israel does not have the capacity on its own to do more than injure Iran. Uh, it would count on the United States being dragged into any war uh, to finish the job, as it were. Uh, so the tense, the relationship between Israel and the United States at the moment is not good. Israel is actively opposing the Biden administration's policies, having pocketed all of the goodies that the Trump administration delivered. And uh, this group that is coming, actually there are three delegations uh, coming to Washington, uh, as you said, um, are presumably trying to harmonize uh, U.S. and Israeli relations, which are in a state of disharmony. So the Abraham Accords, which is what Jared Kushner supposedly worked on, is that an attempt to change the subject away from the Israel-Palestinian struggle to a Arab-Iranian struggle? And is that likely to work? Um, I think it's rather fragile. Uh, certainly it was an effort uh, to evade uh, the Palestinian question, which is uh, come down to apartheid in the area that Israel rules, you know, in the area that Israel rules, there are four categories of people. There are Jewish full citizens of Israel who live in a robust democracy. Uh, there are Palestinian Arabs, Israelis, who are second-class citizens, denied many of the welfare benefits and much of the attention um, that uh, Jewish Israelis have. Uh, there are uh, Palestinians in the West Bank who are subject to a Kafka-esque a system of controls on their movements and often denied basic human necessities, um, which reflects an Israeli long-term policy of trying to uh, engage in ethnic cleansing and expel them. And finally, there is Gaza, which is an open-air prison, which is constantly, or I should say intermittently, strafed and bombed uh, by uh, the Israelis, uh, killing many people. Uh, so um, all of this, uh, the Abraham Accord business was an attempt to uh, obscure attention to this and uh, to pretend, I think, uh, incorrectly that uh, Israel can enjoy peace and security with its neighbors uh, if it does nothing about the, the Palestinian issue. Uh, so it is fragile. Uh, it is terribly unpopular among the populace in the UAE and uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, even among the ruling families in those places, it is controversial. So is there a, a possibility, though, that the U.S. can shift its focus away from the Middle East, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan being an example? I mean, for example, do you think the Quad is something to look at if we are to sort of pay more attention to China, not so much being paranoid, but figuring out how to deal with China as opposed to 
either having a new Cold War or continuing to sort of misunderstand each other? Well, that's really two questions, Ian. First on the Middle East, um, uh, yes, it is possible for the U.S. to disengage. Our interests are, have been attenuated by uh, our own rebound as an energy producer and exporter. Uh, fracking has enabled the United States to replace Saudi Arabia as the swing producer in the global market. And while uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Kuwait, uh, UAE, and other countries in the Gulf remain terribly cutter, remain terribly important in terms of global uh, energy uh, supplies, uh, oil and gas, uh, and therefore essential to the global prosperity that the United States would wish to preserve, uh, we no longer take responsibility uh, under America first uh, type reasoning uh, for the well-being of other peoples. Uh, but we are not dependent on the Middle East. We hardly import any Mid uh, Middle Eastern oil or gas. And so um, there is a, a very, very likely case to be made that we should pull back. And in fact, countries in the region anticipate that, which is why they are reaching out to um, China, to Russia, to um, the EU, such as it is, um, uh, not as a substitute for the United States militarily, because there is no substitute, but as uh, much steadier, less erratic uh, partners um, economically and politically. The Quad is an interesting instrument of uh, statecraft. It is really a consultative group. Uh, it is not going to become an Asian NATO. Uh, none of the partners in it are prepared to do that although there are those in Washington who wish for that. Uh, India, for example, is decidedly non-aligned in its reasoning. It's prepared to take advantage of anything that is offered to it, but it is not going to lock itself into an alliance with anyone else. Japan is allied with the United States, but very cautious about uh, China. It has just made it clear that it has no commitment to assist the United States if there is a war in the Taiwan area. Um, Australia, perhaps, uh, would be closer to the American view, but it's also remarkably realist. The Australians, um, in terms of their perception of global realities, are great realists, and I think they see the limitations of this. Nonetheless, the Quad, as a consultative group, as a discussion group, can play an important role uh, in developing parallel policies uh, that, to some extent, balance the rise of Chinese power. So just in closing, do you think that we can, and we, we, obviously we should, but can we avoid a, a new Cold War with China? Is, there is obviously hawkish noises coming from Washington, and at this point, the only thing we're hearing from the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis China is a policy of extreme competition, whatever that means. So how do you, just in the last couple of minutes here, how do you see U.S.-China relations going forward? Well, I don't like the formulation of new Cold War, uh, first of all, because it's quite possible that the war will be hot, not cold, given the fact that it involves an American effort, apparently, to detach part of a nuclear power from the rest of it. 
uh, you know, we're talking about uh, a, a an issue that is central to Chinese nationalism, uh, arguably not so central to American interests, uh, and that has the potential to escalate to the nuclear level quite quickly. Uh, so I don't think that's a good analogy, and uh, there are other elements missing. Um, China has no satellites. Uh, it has no empire beyond its own borders. Uh, it has no ideology it can explain to anyone, even its own people, um, and is not apparently interested at all in how we foreigners govern ourselves. Uh, so the ideological element that has uh, now found its way into the relationship derives entirely from American liberal ideology, not from the Chinese. Uh, so this is very different. Um, it is very, very different, and uh, I don't think the analogies are at all helpful. Uh, I think it's vastly more dangerous, in fact, than uh, the Cold War was, in part for the reason that uh, George Kennan's brilliant strategy of containment rested on the assumption that if the Soviet Union were walled off from the world, it would eventually fall of its own defects. Nobody expects China to fail. In fact, it is charging ahead as we speak. So this is a very poor frame in which to make policy. We cannot resurrect the Cold War techniques and hope that they will work in the new context. And a quick comment on how you see Biden's extreme policy of extreme competition manifesting itself. I think it is essentially a play to reach across the aisle to Republicans. Uh, this is probably the one only issue on which Republicans and Democrats agree. Uh, Mr. Biden, as you noted, uh, has an impressive uh, uh, domestic agenda that he wishes to put through the Congress. It's natural in this, con in this case to uh, find a unifying theme, and he's done that in hostility to China. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's a very bad policy, even though about 90% of the American people uh, now are ill-disposed or hostile to China. Uh, by the way, a comparable percentage of Chinese have become hostile to the United States. This is not a good way to approach things, uh, but it is dictated mostly by domestic politics. Well, Ambassador Chas Freeman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ambassador Chas Freeman, who is a visiting scholar at the Brown University Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs and earned the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his roles in designing a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé d'Affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing. He's the former Director of Chinese Affairs at the United States Department of State and was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back and go to the background briefing broadcast of August the 26th of 2021 when we covered the bombings at the Kabul airport.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adam Weinstein, who is a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a former Marine deployed in Afghanistan. He previously worked as a senior law and policy analyst at the National Iranian American Council. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Weinstein. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we last spoke you made the point that the sort of folly of the Afghan war was that on 9-11, 3,000 Americans were killed by an attack on our soil, but then we sent over thousands of Americans to places where these kind of terrorists who attacked us on 9-11 actually had access to Americans, meaning American troops, and that we sort of handed our service men and women to them, in effect, and on the way out, as we are watching this evacuation from the Kabul airport, today, of course, there were two bombings, one of which appears to have been a suicide bombing, casualties of 12 U.S. Marines killed, 15 injured, scores of Afghan civilians killed, and uh, a number of Taliban guards as well killed. And, of course, the President Biden on Tuesday had warned about the possibility of these attacks. He said, every day we are on the ground is another day we know ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport. The sooner we get finished, the better. So I guess this is just more agony, right? But presumably it will be over soon. Yes, I think that um, it's now fairly certain that uh, the remaining U.S. troops will uh, be out of Afghanistan by August 31st. This is uh, agony is the right way to describe it. Uh, as a former U.S. Marine myself, it's painful to think about uh, the young Marines who have lost their lives today and the number keeps changing. Um, but it is an example of the cost of staying. And look, a lot of folks who are going to be using this day to engage in partisan attacks against President Biden uh, just a, a month ago, we're saying, or even just a week ago, we're saying, look, the cost of staying in Afghanistan was low. We were only losing about a dozen to 20 uh, U.S. service members a year prior to the deal we made with the Taliban. Well, the price is not low, and today is an example of that. And what about this notion that the Islamic State and the, the Taliban are enemies? First of all, apparently... The Taliban, since they took over, have released all prisoners from jails, among them these Islamic State, or ISIS-K as it's called in Afghanistan. So what's your understanding about that relationship between the Taliban and, and ISIS? So the Taliban and ISIS, I do think, are genuine enemies because they're competing for legitimacy. But they have benefited, or at least the Taliban have benefited from plausible deniability due to the existence of ISIS in, in Af Afghanistan, sometimes called ISIS in the Khorasan province, or ISKP. And what basically happened is that over the last year, sometimes there would be these brutal attacks, terrorist attacks inside Afghanistan that nobody would claim. Or the Taliban could say it wasn't them and blame it on ISIS, but who knows, perhaps it was the Taliban. So I think in some cases, there's been a symbiotic relationship but for the most part, they are enemies. Um, I don't think the Taliban benefits from today's attack or wanted to see it happen. I also don't think the Taliban are capable of securing Kabul from ISKP because ISKP is entrenched in the city and they have operatives all over the place. 
Well, the fact that there were Taliban guards killed in this blast at the airport, um, but do you think that this can motivate the Taliban to do something about this? I mean, they're basically preventing people from getting to the airport. I'm assuming, uh, Adam, that they're concerned about a brain drain. Is that what's going on? Well, they say they're concerned about a brain drain, and uh, perhaps some of the leadership does understand that their fighters don't have many technical skills, and if everyone who um, does have technical skills uh, leaves the country, then they're going to be in bad shape. I also think they just don't want everyone to get out, and they probably have some interest in engaging in reprisals against people who help the Americans to engage in some kind of score settling that will... um, boost the morale of the rank and file of the Taliban. So I think it's a mixture of motivations. I think today's event should be a wake-up call for the Taliban. They've basically been rehashing the same talking point, which is that now that they're in control of Afghanistan and Kabul, there's going to be security and you won't see people dying from the war anymore. And that's their main selling point. It's certainly not civil liberties. Um, Well, if they can't provide security, then that is that that is a stain on their legitimacy to govern whatever little legitimacy they have. So I think it's a wake up call that they probably have to get serious about ISKP. The problem with ISKP is it's hard to deal with them because they infiltrate the population. Even when we had thousands of U.S. troops in, uh, in Kabul, there were still ISKP attacks. So, so far since August the 14th, the United States has evacuated about 100,000 people from Kabul the airport, there are supposedly about 1,500 Americans still somehow left behind. Who are these people? I mean, you would think that they'd be highly motivated to get out. Well, I think it's a little bit unclear who they are, although the U.S. government has made great efforts to identify them and, and call them up, in some cases reaching people who they thought were in Afghanistan and have left, or in other cases reaching people who are still in Afghanistan. It's a mix of people, NGO workers, um, American citizens of Afghan origin who were living with family in Kabul, um, people like that, people were, who were highly motivated to continue to invest in the future of Afghanistan, people who have deep connections to the country who might not have wanted to leave uh, Kabul just yet. And they didn't think that the security situation would deteriorate so rapidly. And they essentially got stuck. By the way, there's a reports that there's a group of schoolchildren from San Diego also stuck somehow. I take it there are some helicopters trying to get people out. But do you think that this incident at the airport would change the Taliban's mind about allowing access or maybe they could create a safer access to the airport? I think the Taliban's mind had already been changed about access, although... To my knowledge, they were still letting U.S. citizens through, but they weren't uh, weren't allowing Afghans to go through. Um, I think this is going to certainly change their mind, um, and it, it might even change the mind of the Biden administration. Look, I do think the Taliban have a genuine incentive not to allow more ISIS attacks, but I don't know that they have the capacity to prevent it. So if we're relying on the Taliban to provide security, I think we're, we're in bad shape. So this is... It, there's no way to sugarcoat this situation. It's a bad situation. This is this is what happens when uh, you know the United States essentially loses a war and is in a position where it has to withdraw. And this is this moment was 20 years in the making. And I think right now we have to focus on getting the remaining people out who are on the tarmac. And we're probably going to have to develop new plans for how to get uh, folks who are left behind out of the country, whether that's through land routes, charter flights. Maybe there will be 
Um, maybe commercial flights will restart at some point, although the security situation doesn't look good. But it's going to take some creative minds to get the rest of these folks out. And again, with today's casualties of 12 U.S. Marines killed, 15 injured, scores of Afghan civilians killed, and uh, a number of Taliban guards as well killed in today's bombings. There hasn't been an American casualty for some time, has there not, Adam? No, well over a year, and that was uh, because of the U.S.-Taliban agreement uh, in which uh, the, essentially the Taliban ceased uh, attacking U.S. targets in exchange for their withdrawal. And keep in mind that if President Biden had chosen not to withdraw U.S. troops, the Taliban would have directed uh, their ire back at U.S. troops and U.S. troops would have died. I think it's important to recognize the gravity of this tragedy and look into what went wrong and who was responsible for what went wrong with the security at the airport. But we also have to remember the alternative was not no casualties. There were going to be U.S. casualties if we just stayed on in Afghanistan. So that's something that needs to be recognized um, but it, it, it just is a dismal situation. And do you think that I spoke the other day with a, an analyst, um, formerly with the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs, and he was suggesting that the Taliban taking over, in fact, he thought that they might actually collapse at some point soon because the glue that holds that movement together is the resistance to foreign occupiers, which, of course, history makes it clear from the British through the Russians now to the U.S. and its allies. Do you hold that view as well, Adam Weinstein, that maybe they're going to have a hard time governing this country? They're running out of money pretty quickly if they haven't run out of money already. And, you know, if they're a bunch of religious zealots, they're not exactly trained to stand up a government, you know, and pick up the garbage, etc. Yeah, I think that's true that there's there's going to be a bit of a legitimacy problem in terms of their ability to govern versus their, their identity as a, an insurgency organization. I mean, as you point out, it is the fight against the United States is the glue um, that holds uh, the Taliban together. I think we're already seeing a little bit of infighting between the Haqqani Network faction and factions more loyal to Mullah Baradar, who um, is the deputy and was leading um, was leading negotiations in Doha. So there might be some infighting. I don't think that they're imminently going to collapse. Um, it just remains to be seen. There's a fighting that's still going on in parts of the country as well. So the Taliban's grip on power is not completely secure. But I, you know, I also don't think that the collapse is imminent. It just remains to be seen. And if there's anything we've learned in the last month predictions about Pakistan, I mean, sorry, predictions about Afghanistan are not worth that much. And uh, you had a slip of the tongue there with Pakistan. What are we hearing from Pakistan, apart from the fact that Prime Minister Imran Khan recently said that the Taliban victory uh, was taking off the shackles of slavery? I have no idea what he meant by that. Well, uh, this is the the messaging coming out of Pakistan is inconsistent. And, uh, you know, in one moment, they'll say something that's reasonable and they'll say, you know, the reestablishment of a Taliban emirate that's inclusive of no uh, dissenting political figures is not in Pakistan's interest. They'll admit that um, instability in Afghanistan is not in Pakistan's interest. But in the other, you know, a moment later, they'll, they'll say something like the quote that uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan said, which is almost gleeful at times. I think that it's 
for a part of the Pakistani domestic audience that does support the Afghan Taliban. And I think that's who those statements are intended for. Um, and so I think this is not a defense of it. I think it's a vile statement. But from a political perspective, I think someone like Prime Minister Khan knows that he has to appease some of the more ultra-conservative elements of Pakistani society who might see this as a victory. Um, and at the same time, he also has to preserve Pakistan's relationship with the with the United States. And Pakistan itself is in a precarious situation because it has um, violent insurgent groups that operate inside Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, and it has anti-state groups, and it has um, a society that uh, elements of it are radicalized. And so that's a reality of Pakistan. But I think Pakistan has bitten off a little more than it can chew here. And it had gotten really comfortable in the Taliban sort of gaining more and more territory, but not actually taking control of the country. And um, I think their plan of just providing tacit support to both the United States and the Taliban backfired on them a little bit. And now they're going to have to deal with an Afghanistan right next door that's Taliban controlled. And what kind of refugee flow are they likely to get? Because already we know refugees are flowing into Iran and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. I think they're going to get a significant refugee flow. I mean, right now, the border crossings into Pakistan are bottlenecked. But uh, as they begin to open or if they begin to open, I think you're going to see a significant flow of refugees into Pakistan. And it's going to it's going to strain a country that already has a bad economy and doesn't know what to do with the refugees they already have. Um, And although Pakistan should be um, lauded for the amount of refugees it's taken in, it has not always done right by those refugees. So that's something Pakistan's going to have to figure out. And frankly, the international community should help Pakistan out when it comes to that, because it's in the interest of everyone. And what do you think the U.S. can do about those that are left behind that have worked for the U.S.? In other words, the face of the Taliban now are being pragmatic. That could change pretty much overnight, do you think, after the end of this month, coming up in a few days? I think that's very possible. Um, And I I think right now the Taliban have a lot of media attention on them, and they have a lot of foreign eyes on them because there's still folks at the airport, there's still foreign journalists walking around in Kabul. If you look at the way the Taliban have treated matters in the provincial cities where there's less people watching, the reports that we're hearing about are a little bit more brutal, a little bit more reminiscent of the Taliban of the late 1990s. I definitely think that the Taliban have not changed quite as much as their PR suggests they have. But there are some positive signs. they have been willing to meet with minorities. They have been willing to meet with former political rivals. I mean, we can paint this as just charades, but it's more than they were ever willing to do before. So I guess it remains to be seen. But the United States absolutely should not take the Taliban at their word. We need to develop a way to stay in touch with former interpreters and human rights activists and try to find a way to get them out of the country, whether that's through you know, helping to reestablish commercial flights coming out of Afghanistan, whether that's through land routes um, and the details of how this will work um, will probably remain a secret and should remain a secret. But I think it's important to get those people out. 
And just in closing, what do you know about the fact that the Taliban have been working with the former President Karzai? And of course, it's worth noting that Karzai's brother was a major drug dealer, and we know that the Taliban have also been involved in the opium trade. So I find it a little puzzling, but I'm wondering exactly what's going on there. Well, over the years, Karzai has been more and more critical of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, and some of his criticism has been self-serving and some of his criticism has been, been valid. I think the United States put Karzai in a difficult position when we were engaging in drone strikes and, and um, causing civilian casualties, and he essentially looked like he had his hands tied and, couldn't, and, and, and nobody would listen to him on the U.S. side of things. At the same time, Karzai is not a victim. He you know, was uh, involved in corruption just as much as as as, as Ghani in many ways. Um, so I think what Karzai is doing is he's staying behind and the Taliban understand the value of these photo ops with Karzai and they understand the value of including a few different uh, political actors. They've, they've co-opted uh, former militia leaders and former leaders of uh, CIA-backed CIA groups uh, in Afghanistan. So it's surprising how quickly they've tried to expand their tent. I guess we're going to have to wait and see to see if that inclusion is real or if it's just for the photo. And do you believe that reports, uh, Adam Weinstein, just in closing, that Ghani showed up in the UAE with $169 million in US cash? Well, you know what, there's a lot of misinformation floating around in Afghanistan, but I'll put it to you this way. If it's true, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. And I definitely don't think Ashraf Ghani left Afghanistan with no money. Well, Adam Weinstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Adam Weinstein, who's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a former Marine deployed in Afghanistan. He previously worked as a senior law and policy analyst at the National Iranian American Council. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back discussing the deteriorating U.S. relations with Russia from a background briefing broadcast of October the 12th, 2021, with Fiona Hill. The newborn in the hammock rocks Below a bolted sky that unlocks For the departing of the flocks From the shadow of an empire God loves a trial, an articulate liar. The auctioneer makes it clear and booms. Can you bid any higher? Or is the gentleman at the back a buyer? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Fiona Hill, a senior fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019, and from 2006 to 2009 served as the National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. She has researched and published extensively on issues related to Russia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, regional conflicts, energy, and strategic issues, and is the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and The Siberian Curse, How Communist Planners Left Russia Out in the Cold. And her latest book, Just Out, is There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Fiona Hill. Oh, thanks so much, Ian. Great to be with you. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And the title of your new book, of course, is what your father said to you in this sort of post-industrial decay in the north of England with the coal miners uh, largely unemployed. Your grandfather uh, was badly injured in the coal mines, and he's telling you there's nothing for you here. And that prompted you to what? Go to Russia and then on to the United States? Well, it's also prompted me to, you know, go on to university and also try to um, seek uh, uh, an education. I probably um, <laughs> overfulfilled the plan because, <laughs> I mean, my dad um, had left school at 14, like many other people um, from um, his background, uh, pushed to go down the mines uh, to put money on the table and, you know, kind of get out to work as soon as possible. And he'd always really regretted not being able to continue with his education. He'd actually enjoyed school. Uh, but you know, kind of, he was he was pushed out, and he spent quite a lot of time, sort of seeking self edification and education, going to miners' reading um, circles and uh, like kind of book clubs almost that were kind of set up by some of the local churches and the Durham Miners Association, and generally, you know, trying to read newspapers and keep engaged. And so he was basically saying to me, "Look, I would have loved to have had an educational opportunity. I never had it. You should go out and take it." But that overall message was you know, there's nothing for you here in terms of job prospects and life opportunities because all of the industry was closing down. Even, you know, if it had been open as a girl, I wouldn't have been following my dad down the mines, of course. Um, but the whole prospects in the north of England were pretty grim. And in fact, you know, you coming from you know, Australia, yourself, Ian, a number of my relatives emigrated to Australia in that time frame, you know, to go and work in industry in Australia because they were recruiting and others uh, moved to the United States and Canada and elsewhere in the world. And my dad himself thought about moving to the United States to work in a coal mine in either Pennsylvania or West Virginia. And you have a chapter in your new book, From the Coal House to the White House. But nevertheless, this extraordinary journey you've taken, you consider it a fluke? Well, yes, coming from that kind of background in the north of England, in that period, you know, that kind of social mobility across class lines was pretty unheard of. There are, you know, people from my background out there in the UK in positions, but they're few and far between. In some cases, you know, they tend to be actually in uh, entertainment industry, a lot of comedians, actors, actresses, you know, from the north of England. Um, you know, quite a few made it to Hollywood, you know, people who people might recognize, character actors, but very few in the upper reaches of politics, unless they went from, you know, local politics and then through the unions, for example, into the Labour Party, very unlikely to have made it on the other side of uh, the political aisle in the UK. Um, and very few people in business from these kinds of backgrounds, lots of musicians, rock musicians, you know, for example, someone like Sting um, is from the northeast of England, from Wall's End uh, near Newcastle. His dad was a milkman, you know, for um, the area around the local shipyards. Um, Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, maybe a bit old for some of the listeners, you know, kind of, but, um, you know, pretty famous back in the 70s and 80s. His uh, family were coal miners from um, the same region as I'm from. But it was unlikely for someone to s set themselves up on, on a professional career and certainly to end up in some of the places that I have. So let's turn to your after St Andrews you went to Moscow and you were there in the what the late 80s is that, uh, I Donald was Trump I mean you know, it, yeah. yeah Donald Trump made 80s. his first trip to Moscow in July the 4th of 1987 were you there at that time I arrived there in September so he beat me just by a couple of months I was there by September uh, 1987 I mean that was you know the peak of perestroika the Gorbachev Reagan 
uh, summits of arms control. And I started to study Russian in 1984 against the backdrop of uh, the nuclear standoff, the Cold War war scare over the stationing of SS-20 and Pershing missiles in Europe. And, you know, that was the whole period where all eyes were on the Soviet Union. Everybody was fascinated by Gorbachev and, you know, what he could uh, potentially do. And, yes, that's when I ended up there, September 1987, to study for a year. And when Donald Trump returned from that first trip, which was sponsored by the Soviet foreign ministry, and with the lure, by the way, of building a Trump Tower in Moscow, the same lure that was dangled again in 2016 by Felix Sater and others. Right. Um, nevertheless, he, when he got back to the United States, he took out full-page ads in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe, essentially parroting Russian propaganda. What do you think that was about? Well, look, he's not the only one. Many people who went to uh, the Soviet Union or to Russia in uh, different times were um, you know, persuaded that, you know... Um, Things were going smoothly and swimmingly there, particularly in somebody who you know wanted to uh, do some business there to build a building, as you laid out. People who you know had uh, political interests that dovetailed with some of the positions that the uh, Russians and Soviets were putting out. I mean, there's a long history of the Soviet Union, and that was still the Soviet Union in the 1980s, inviting over people from marginalised, persecuted groups. Uh, the you know the famous black tenor Paul Robeson and many other musicians and singers and actors and actresses who are African-American who were invited out in the 20s and 30s because they'd literally been persecuted back at home or ostracized, a whole host of you know others at different uh, time frames. I mean, this is something that the Soviet Union um, did and modern Russia does too, invite groups over to put themselves in the best light with the expectation that they will come back home again and report favorably on what they've seen. I wrote a book about uh, Vladimir Putin in 2013 and again in 2015 when I updated it. And I'd also been invited, like many others, to take part in something called the Valdai Discussion Club, which is still going on, that invited experts, academics, reporters, you know, journalists um, over to Russia with the express intention on the part of uh, our host. They made it um, incredibly uh, directly apparent that we would go back and feel, you know, kind of compelled to say something positive about the experience. And again, I'm speaking with Fiona Hill, a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and a Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019, and from 2006 to 2009 served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Intelligence Council, and she's the author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and The Siberian Curse, How Communist Planners Left Russia Out in the Cold. And her latest book, just out, is There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. So moving forward to 2016, as you point out in your book, President Vladimir Putin unleashed the Russian security services to intervene in the 2016 elections, and at that time, when it became apparent to the Obama administration, Obama tried to get McConnell and Paul Ryan and the other Democratic counterparts together and come up with a joint statement. McConnell refused to do that. In retrospect, I wonder why Obama still didn't go public and, and warn that Russia was interfering at that point, certainly in the early stages of the 2016 elections. A lot of talk about the the Steele dossier, but that seems to be 
a distraction. There was some pretty hard evidence, wasn't there, that Obama was basing that meeting on. There was a fellow called Oleg Smilenkov who was exfiltrated out of Russia who had been the chief aide to the deputy foreign minister. He, was, he had access to Putin's desk. So what, what happened at that moment? Do you think that that was a, a mistake on the part of Obama not to warn the American public that Russia's interference was going on early on? Would that have been a deterrent to Putin's actions? I don't think it would have been a deterrent to Putin's actions because he would have denied it as he's continued to do so. I think it was the challenge, as you always have in these cases, is how to warn, you know, and what the, the warning will also do to the, your ability to push back against it. Because, you know, once a warning is issued and, you know, you have to say how you know this, of course, then uh, the ways and the channels in which you're getting these information become closed off. But at the same time, you know, it seems very evident from, um, you know, some reporting around the time and just from myself talking to people behind the scenes that, you know, there was kind of a worry right away about the politicization of this information, that it might be seen to be interfering in the election. Because what were the Russians trying to do? They were clearly trying to subvert the whole election process, cast a poll over and a big question mark over the whole election and its legitimacy. They were um, targeting a number of campaigns. I mean, this is, you know, something in the end that you know, I um, am concerned about that we didn't get a full accounting of all the things that they were attempting to do. It wasn't that they were just trying to denigrate um, Hillary Clinton and, you know, promote the candidacy of Trump. They'd actually been actively out there trying to infiltrate and uh, get information and try to influence all of the campaigns of the major contenders. They weren't expecting uh, Donald Trump to emerge as the kind of the wild card candidate, the last man standing out of such a large array of Republican uh, candidates and they'd uh, try to get their way into other campaigns um, during the primaries. And in terms of, you know, Hillary Clinton, their main goal was, to, of course, to denigrate her and to, you know, basically push out even further a lot of the information that was being produced by domestic political operatives. I mean, one of the things to bear in mind about the Russians is they don't always just inf invent information. What they'll do is exploit what's out there and they will amplify it particularly negative information. And, you know, the hack and release of Hillary Clinton's emails and the DNC's emails, the Democratic you know, National Committee, that was probably one of the most damaging acts that they did. You know, everything from, you know, revealing the inner wranglings around her candidacy and Bernie Sanders, you know, the kind of back and forth um, of uh, individuals about what they thought about each other. This was all, you know, clearly um, designed to tie people up in knots and sort of, you know, damage people's reputations. So what the Russians do is they use what's there. Well, of course, the data dump, that happened through WikiLeaks, and it essentially took off the headlines that damaging uh, Access Hollywood tapes. That, Absolutely, uh, yeah. So that's hardly coincidental. Well, um, no, the Russians, it, it's, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't coincidental because they're watching very closely our own politics. And look, remember, they uh, created uh, false personas on the internet, you know, posing as Americans on Facebook and elsewhere. And they were out to damage, you know, Clinton as much as they could. And they happened to be acting in parallel, you know, with other political actors in our own domestic system, including President Trump and his campaign, out to damage her too. She was the person to beat. And in the Russian case, they wanted to beat her up and to, you know, in, in the anticipation she would become president, have a big question over her legitimacy and her, her credibility. But did they get lucky with Trump or was there some design there? Because I'm sure Putin thought that Trump 
would lose like everybody else did. Sure. But but he still had it covered and he had plan B, did he not, which would be Trump running around the country leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up. So well, that was certainly that was certainly Trump's plan B. So if we look from the Russians' perspective, all of this is win-win. And the more that we suggest that, you know, they won the election for Trump, the bigger the win they have. Because of what an astounding proposition that, right. you know, the former Soviet spies, now new Russian spies, can actually manipulate the outcome of an American election. I mean, that's giving them the biggest win of all by, you know, even saying that. And, you know, I, part of the uh, you know reason for writing the book is also, you know, to point out that that actually lets us off the hook in the United States. I mean, a lot of people want to believe that Trump was elected by Vladimir Putin and his manipulation of his security service manipulation of the election because they don't want to lock down, you know, kind of around them, at, you know, the circumstances uh, that produced Trump in the first place. The mismanagement of the campaign by a whole host of other Republican candidates, the grievances, you know, in the country that Trump was able to tap into. You know, I think Putin was just quicker than most to recognize, you know, the potential of Trump because he's a populist leader. Trump was, you know, doing many of the same things that Putin had done or that leaders in other countries that Putin's already, you know, gotten his uh, crosshairs have, have been doing. Uh, Trump was, you know, in many respects, you know, as you're suggesting, a kind of a bit of a, a godsend in a way, because he was just this unique populist character, very focused in on himself, not focused in on the United States and its interests, ignorant of, you know, a lot of the larger dynamics of uh, the relationships and incredibly easy to manipulate. But the circumstances that allowed Trump to flourish, you write a lot about, and that is this sort of post-industrial Rust Belt, you know, having come from the north of England equivalent and the disaffection and the alienation. Obviously, Putin is exploiting fishes that already exist here in the United States. And the extent to which this continues, I wonder, you know, you, you pose the question of whether we thought that there was a postscript after Biden got elected, but maybe we have a preface here for a continuation of these divisions. I mean, could you make the case that Trump is the gift that keeps on giving? Well, I think I think you've just um, made the case very, very well there, Ian. Uh, exactly. You know, one of the main points of uh, the exercise of unleashing the security services was to discredit the United States as a global actor. You know, we'd spent an awful lot of time. One of the precipitating events for this for Putin, it's kind of like a bit of a vengeance uh, exercise for him, was when he decided to return to the Russian presidency in 2011, 2012, having stepped away for a period after two terms as president, you know, he wasn't uh, under the constitution at that point, allowed to run for office again as president. So he steps away to be prime minister. He puts in his close associate, Dmitry Medvedev, into the presidency, um, you know, I mean, with some show of an election. And then he's deciding to come back again because he doesn't like the way things are, are unfolding. And Hillary Clinton, among many other world figures, because she's then the Secretary of State, um, is very vociferous in her opposition, her criticism of Putin. And Putin seems to firmly believe that Clinton, in um, her role as Secretary of State and the uh, US State Department, the embassy in Moscow, were basically pushing programs to thwart his re-election because they were you know, promoting programs of transparency in elections and election oversight. And of course, the United States always used to make you know, very uh, strong international pronouncements on the nature of, of elections, whether they were free or fair, how well they were conducted. And I think, you know, basically, Putin wants to say, well, let's see, you know, right back at you, um, how you feel about having so many questions about the legitimacy of your elections or someone intervening, you know, to mess up your election. So, you know, in a way, he was uh, hoping 
to kind of push everything right back at us again and you know in many respects succeeded probably beyond his wildest dreams because of the acute vulnerability to manipulation all of the grievances that we've just talked about and the fragility of our political systems with this acute polarization fights within the republican party i mean you've got to remember that donald trump in a way you know usurps the republican party because the 17 other candidates are all fighting among themselves the republican party also fighting among uh, the democratic party rather with big fights between hillary clinton and bernie sanders on the one hand i mean basically patterns that are still there in the parties between the left and you know the kind of right parts of uh, each of the parties so you know putin was just kind of walking in through a whole set of open doors using social media you know americans propensity to just kind of not read what they're posting and sending on to friends and relatives it was just an incredibly fertile environment and as you said it still is well that's where it's quite alarming. And you, in an interview that you did with Politico recently, Fiona, you suggested that it, if Trump is re-elected in 2024, it'll be game over for American democracy. It's beginning to be game over already, irrespective of Trump's presidential ambitions. And he, he went to Iowa on Saturday, which is pretty telling. The Republican Party itself, which is very much Trump's party, the voter suppression that's underway is so multi-layered through gerrymandering alone, they'll probably pick up the House before one vote is taken. They've got the possibility on Election Day of all kinds of voter suppression. And then after Election Day, they've got, in many key states, through Republican legislatures, they've got the ability to count and certify the vote. If they don't like it, they can overturn it. Then you've got Steve Bannon's operation at the level of the precincts, where they're driving out traditionally neutral poll workers and bringing in the kind of crazy partisans that you saw with the the cyber ninjas in Arizona. So already we have uh, creeping authoritarianism in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. the possibility that through the rigging of the elections, irrespective of Trump, that we could be heading towards a one-party state. Yeah, you're describing, you know, kind of very vividly and accurately, you know, what I talk in the book of the authoritarian's playbook. You know, what's happened in other countries um, where we've seen the, the same progression of, you know, kind of more neutral bodies pushed out of the way, a more partisan uh, tenor to all of the elections, uh, independent election officials and judges uh, removed from office and, uh, you know, one political party, the ruling uh, party, eclipsing everything else. You're describing, you know, what happened in Russia in the 2000s since uh, Vladimir Putin came along. You're describing, you know, what's been happening. We've been seeing in somewhere like Hungary, you know, where the European Union is sort of grappling with an illiberal uh, direction that Hungary's taken. You know, uh, similar, you know, developments that have been, you know, happening to some extent in Poland, you know, for example. But it's more, you know, kind of uh, the the tenor of uh, politics in Latin American countries or, you know, in other parts of the world that just not something that we're used to seeing in, in the United States. And you've got your, you know, finger right on it, on the pulse of what's happening here. This is why it's so incredibly dangerous. And if, uh, you know, members of the, the party that are trying to pervert uh, the electoral system in these kinds of directions to stay in power, you don't stand up for democracy, then there's, you know, it becomes extraordinarily difficult you know, for others to push back. Pushback would have to come, um, you know, at the states and local government level. But, you know, we've already seen in the newspapers are full of articles about the nationalization of our local politics, where, you know, kind of places like Wisconsin or Arizona or Georgia have become 
the proving and fighting grounds for things that are happening on the national stage. Well, with something like 80% of Republicans believing that Trump won and this the big lie metastasizing the way that it is and that the real threat of Trump running again in 2024 and frankly... Uh, he's laid the groundwork, so no matter what the voters say in 2024, if indeed he is the Republican candidate, he'll still declare himself the winner. So sure. this is where it gets mystifying, is why is there any support at all? Your book paints a portrait of this absolutely outrageous, incompetent amateur out of his depth. I mean, he got rolled by Xi, he got rolled by Putin, he got rolled by Erdogan. He got rolled by the Taliban, for God's sake, and 700,000 Americans are dead because of his incompetence from COVID. Yet there is this extraordinary amount of support. Is that, I mean, I'm looking around for an explanation for that. Is it, is it that we have a, the American equivalent of Surkoff in Murdoch and Fox? What explains the grip that he has over at least a third of the country? Well, I think there are a number of things that explain it. And I do, you know, lay out in the book where, you know, many people saw him as their champion, you know, somebody, the anti-establishment figure, you know, coming out to try to, you know, fix things for them, just like Putin presented himself in Russia. And, you know, for many people, they did feel that he fixed a lot for them. I mean, if people who were, you know, really interested in having conservative judges appointed uh, across the country into the Supreme Court, they got what they wanted. Because you've got to remember, an awful lot of people in the United States have single issues that they, you know, that they vote on or that they have their adherence to a political party. A lot of people, you know, got what they wanted. Very wealthy Americans who didn't want to pay taxes, businesses who wanted to, you know, see deregulation and and the United States to pull out of the Paris Peace Accord, you know, on climate change, for example. There was a lot of things for people to want on a practical level. Then there's the more sort of psychological aspect of it. I mean, we, you know, kind of know that um, President Trump is uh, incredibly narcissistic, very self-absorbed. I saw that over and over again, as I describe in the book. He was always Trump first, not America first. But he also has a charisma that, uh, you know, for people who kind of see him in action, you know, they find him you know, very um, alluring is the only way to put it. Basically, I talk, there's a part in the book about the allure of Trump. He's a big guy. Yeah, he's lived the life. Um, he's selling himself and his lifestyle, his lifestyle of the rich and famous. A lot of people looking to that saying, yeah, I want to be that. He's kind of like their avatar in, you know, a game of life. They, they would like to be out there and, you know, kind of basically strut about and say what they want to say, do what they want to do, have the beautiful life. He's extraordinarily good at selling things. He he honed his craft in reality television. So and, and he's transferred into really, you know, very clever retail politics. He's in constant campaign mode. He's always out there in rallies, just like he was, you know, recently in Iowa, whipping up the cloud. He's a performer. He's an entertainer. Again, it's like an avatar in this video game. People project on him, you know, what they would like to sort of see themselves doing. He's the big finger to the aloof elites who have disrespected people and talked past them all the time and taken their uh, their votes for granted. There's a sort of a complexity there. And then when it comes to congressional Republicans in the House and in the Senate, he's told them, he's bullied them. He's told them that, you know, if you go after me, you're not loyal to me. I'm going to have you kicked out of office. I'm going to after you and I'm going to get loyalists put in your place because I'm going to turn all the voters about uh, against you because there is no Republican Party. He's saying there's no congressional Republican Party. There's only the party of Trump. 
And so he's bullied and frightened and intimidated people. Some of them are telling themselves, well, if I leave office, if I quit and I go, well, who else is he going to put in place? I've got to, you know, they're, they're telling themselves that they're sort of saving the country. And others are like, I can't imagine myself going off and not being in Congress or not in the Senate. I've done this my whole life, my whole professional life. How could this is me? This is my own identity. And he's threatening that for them. But I mean, this is one of those moments in the history of our nation and, you know, like one of those other world events when we're on the precipice of some real disaster and people have to stand up here and, and just sort of think, you know, about their children, their grandchildren. I mean, really, you want to have, you know, after hundreds of years of trying to build and improve on an American democracy, you just want to throw that all away? Well, just in closing, you and I have chosen to be in this country. And yeah. You know, it just breaks my heart to see what's happening to the possibility of the end of American democracy. And just to sort of finish up on this idea of Surkov, the political technologist who's been so successful for image making with, in terms of Putin, is there an explanation? I'm in the in the journalism business and I've never seen propaganda before. I mean, you know, I used to back during the Cold War, you know, I met a lot of journalists and in the Soviet Union from Tass and Pravda and understood that they <laughs> they were forced to be propagandists. But the idea that we, in America you have volunteer propaganda in the form of Fox and other outlets, that's what I find so disturbing and so frightening that it's not just Trump's skills that you've outlined very eloquently, it's the echo chamber that bothers me. Well, it's also because of the whole commercialization of the press. I mean, obviously there's a big struggle, um, you know, you and I, Growing up in Australia, in the United Kingdom, you know, there was like the BBC, the BBC World Service. And of course, you know, your uh, fellow countryman, Rupert Murdoch, you know, wanted to break out of that kind of state monopoly of news of everyone having the same news from the same source. But that's come at a price. Because just like with the algorithms that we've heard so much about from Facebook, uh, from Francis Hogan, the whistleblower, that they're designed to encourage, you know, people to be more outrageous and to take, you know, kind of hateful stands because that kind of stokes clicks and, you know, kind of brings in advertising revenue when people are constantly drawn to, you know, something that's uh, very tense and intense and, you know, separating people out into various, you know, smaller and smaller affinity groups to fight against each other in these online formats that's the same direction that we've taken in the media you know with uh, the advent of cable news and with all of the kind of broadsheets that uh, sort of came out of the you know the breakdown of uh, the mainstream press and you know to get advertising revenues you need eyeballs or you need readers and people are more and more you know, kind of wanting to have something that draws their attention, it's usually through outrage, certainly not through apathy. And, you know, there is more of a tendency for people to want more affirmation of their viewpoints, no matter how narrow they are, they don't want to be challenged. And we're seeing this reflecting in polls around Trump himself. You know, the vast majority of people that I've seen in polling who describe themselves as Republicans now don't want to see any criticism of Trump because it's like criticisms of themselves and their views and their opinions. And they want to see ostracized, you know, Republicans, Republican candidates who come out with different viewpoints. So, you know, everything seems to be feeding towards a kind of a perfect storm of the situation that we're describing. We've lost local media. Everything has become on the national level. People are running, running more and more to outlets that just affirm their own beliefs. So they don't want to be challenged and they want to have somebody who is their avatar, their champion, you know, to take their own beliefs and their own visions of themselves forward. Well, Fiona Hill, I thank you so much for joining us here today. We could uh, continue on, but I thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Fiona Hill, who's a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019, and from 2006 to 2009 served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And she's the co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and The Siberian Curse, How Communist Planners Left Russia Out in the Cold. And her latest book just out is There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more light goes out in the middle.